0: And welcome back to the podcast we call Trap 1. This week we are going to be discussing um, the new well, the new-ish season 17 box set. And do you know what? How many people does it take to talk about season 17? Well, there's an obvious answer.
1: It's free! <laughs>
0: <laughs> so hello i am Sai, and i am joined tonight by i'm jason and i'm fraser so today the future's foretold the past explained and the podcast is apologized for <laughs> so we are going back to 1979 for the douglas adams year of doctor who and some of us were here for this so this was my very first season back in the day so age four i was sat down to watch destiny of the daleks part one um as an um as half an hour where i could have some quiet time with my mum without my sister being around so um, we would sit on the sofa and watch these stories so these ones are indelibly etched in my memory right from then and what a brilliant and wonderful season it is to join as a as a young man, a young boy, even. um So it's perfect time as a four year old to jump on because the stories were just scary enough, but they were really funny. And Tom Baker is at his height, and the greatest companion of them all is just joining. And there's K nine too. So wow, this is. Yeah. Um, I will be infusing about all of this season all the way through
2: this podcast. I will just warn you now. So, Jason, I take it you were there with us at that time? I was. I'm slightly a little bit longer in the tooth than you, not by too much. Um, I was born in 72. The, the season I remember from the off, I remember snippets of other stories like Genesis the Daleks and The Brain of Morbius, uh, but I do remember virtually like from the hand of fear onwards. Um, so season 17 is etched in my, uh, my brain as like a six-stroke seven-year-old because uh, I would have like turned seven uh, during the broadcast of this season. So yeah, the, the most exciting thing for me was the fact that it was the first time I actually got to see like a proper Dalek story. Obviously, I'd seen clips of Genesis. I think I'd listened to the record that I got um, and it was one of my favourite stories. I read the novelization, So the fact that they were going back to Scarrow And obviously, you know, you had, like, the twist in the story of what the Daleks and the Mavellans were searching for. That was like, oh, my God. You know, I think that really is probably where I really took off as a fan.
0: And how about you, Fraser? When did you first see this
1: season? Well, unfortunately, I missed the first part of the the season, sorry, um, on account of not being born. Um, (laughs) But I did come in in between... Um, episode one and episode two of Nightmare of Eden. I think I was born the day after episode one. Um, so yeah, I picked up after that. But uh, So obviously for me, 1979 is very much a vintage year because I was born, not a table year in the slightest. <laughs> um, but this, this season um, for me was more of a UK gold experience. Um, it wasn't until I got we got uh, cable TV in the late 90s at home. Um, and UK Gold were showing it week after week that I came across these stories such as Eden and Naimon. And, um, I think i got uh, Destiny of the Daleks was in the Davros box set. So that's when I came across that. Um, City of Death was one of the earliest DVDs that I picked up, uh, watched once and never watched again. Um, but Creature from the Pit was a story that I only just came to last year, I think it was. It was on my bad fan list of stories I haven't watched. So um, I crossed it off one night and thoroughly enjoyed that. So, yeah, there's a bit, a bit of a mishmash for me mm-hmm. coming at different times. You know, I've had um, a bit of received fan wisdom to battle against um, to get to this point, you know, because it, it's not a very
0: highly thought of series amongst other fans, is it? No, no. I mean, for a very long time, it was the whipping boy of Doctor Who. It was the lowest of the low. Um, I think, particularly the fans who had grown up sort of through Pertwee and early Tom Baker, suddenly were had a very different show on their hands that they couldn't quite get a handle on, and it was so different to what they thought Doctor Who was that it was uh, sort of mocked and sort of very, very lowly regarded for a long time. But I remember coming into sort of fandom in the late 80s, sort of as a teenager and thinking, oh, well, these were the stories that I loved and everyone must have loved these. And apart from City of Death, they weren't talked about
2: in in good terms at all. Yeah, it's interesting, though, things like sometimes come around and obviously I think... The season's had its reappraisal, hasn't it? It's no longer seen as the Tom Baker comedy half hour show, which uh, (laughs) it was perceived as for quite some time. And it's, you know, because of the genius of Douglas Adams, it's had that reappraisal. And I think that's certainly happened since, uh, you know, Douglas tragically. left us was it 2001 yeah it was wasn't it yeah so quite some time ago yeah and uh, you know quite rightly too yeah yeah it is the season where i think probably i think the bbc started to lose a bit of like you know favor with with the show and you can see that with the constant budget cuts um and obviously you know The state of the country, with the inflation and the power cuts and everything, really had an impact, didn't it? But you know, you can't fault Graham Williams for like you know still churning out an enjoyable set of stories against you know what were terrible circumstances during those that that season. You know, and obviously ended up with one story being cancelled, you know, at the end of the season. Yeah,
0: one yeah one director being sacked. Yes. All of these things were sort of all working against him and then he'd very carefully worked out that you keep your budget for the last story of the season to go out on a high and then your story gets cancelled. And I think that always cast a shadow over season 17 as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's worth remembering as well that this is the time of sort of Buck Rogers, isn't it? And Star Wars and sort of the pulp sci-fi shows coming out of America and this is what you know, Doctor Who's up against at the time. So it's it's natural that Doctor Who is then going to go in that direction and think, well, actually, you know, it's going to be less earthbound and, you know, serious and gothic as sort of like the Hinchcliffe era. It's going to go a bit more high camp space drama.
2: Yeah, he's certainly trying to compare against and compete against like those, like you say, you know, Star Wars. Yeah. Um, which had had a huge impact when it finally got over here at like Christmas '77. And then, like you say, the the we had the like the copycat TV shows from Glen A. Larson, didn't we? Yeah. First, we had Battlestar Galactica, which I remember obviously seeing. The, the pilot was released uh, in the cinemas mm-hmm. um, over here in the UK, and then obviously it turned up on ITV quite soon after that. And then obviously you've got then the ITV suddenly realising that they've got you know some something finally to like put up against Doctor Who, which you know at the time you know obviously you take away the ITV strike that hits this season as well that gives Doctor Who its biggest ever ratings um, of all time. Well, you know, but it was still getting eight to ten million viewers, wasn't it? And then they get Buck Rogers the following year and they put that up against season eighteen and. I'll admit, you know, as a kid, <laughs> I chose book Rogers over, um, you know, <laughs> dull stories about tachyons and all the rest of it <laughs> that um, you know season eighteen started with. And um, it wasn't I think until my dad rented a video recorder, I think, as just as Full Circle started being broadcast, that I got to then actually not have to make that choice every like Saturday night.
0: Yeah, I I watched the first half of Buck Rogers and then turned over for Doctor Who. <laughs> so I never saw a whole episode till it was repeated in the late eighties. <laughs> biddy 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 biddy. <laughs> but yeah, I this is an incredibly imaginative, um, high concept in lots of ways season. Um, I think we just dive in. Shall we talk story by story and make our way through and see what we make of it all? So we start off in um, September 1979 with Destiny of the Daleks. Now, my earliest memory of Doctor Who is of one of those brilliant Doctor Who images that you get um, sort of presented with every so often. And it was the Mervellans ships burying itself in the sand, which was just incredible and really nice bit of model work, and just one of those being a really good idea.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a fantastic um, model shot, isn't it? Um...
2: And had the story not been called Destiny of the Daleks, <laughs> then, you know, you kind of like, it's the way that Terry Nation writes his script, it kind of like implies that you see the ship burying itself into the ground, and then you kind of like make the connection that, obviously, the Doctor and Romana... You know, who makes debut, the beautiful Lala Ward, who makes her debut as Romana in this story, um, have the vibrations and have already kind of like said, well, something's, someone's drilling underneath the ground in this planet. So you automatically assume, you would have done, uh, that it's going to be the Mavellans, And obviously, then the twist is at the end of episode one, the typical Terry Nation trope. (laughs) The Daleks turning
1: up. Oh mm-hmm. who for that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, like I say, I uh came to this one with the Davros DVD box set. So, you know, in a box set with Genesis, um, resurrection, revelation, and remembrance, it's it's very much the whipping boy of, of that box set. Um yeah, it's, it's interesting what you were saying there, um Jason, because you know, when I first watched it, I knew the plot. I knew, you know, the Mavellons are in it. I knew Davros is in it. You know, so there was no kind of real surprise to me that that ship is actually the Mavellon ship. But you could, you know, if you are expecting Daleks, you are naturally going to think, well, that's the Daleks in that.
2: And if I that remember rightly, exactly, uh, this was around the time I think that Doctor Who Weekly was launched as well. So there wasn't even any, like, publicity, I think. There was publicity that like, the Daleks were coming back, and I think I think there was a Radio Times article. Yeah. And there was that shot of um, Tom and Lala in a park somewhere surrounded by four dummy Daleks, you know, that they did for the pre-season thing. Um, but there was nothing, no mention of Davros at all. And yeah. it kind of like, um, you know, one of those big shock moments of, of Doctor Who Cliffhanger that I remember as a kid it was obviously the Cybermen turning up at the End of Earth Shop. Yeah. So I was like, oh my god! You know, read about the Cybermen, read the books, seen the, the photographs in the in Doctor Who Weekly, and it was for me. It's the, it was the same thing with um, Davros. You know, I'd listened to the record Genesis of the Daleks. You know, I'd read the novelization, You know, I'd seen the, the photographs of him. Um, I had one of the novel, uh, not one of the annuals, uh, which was I think the one that you got from the Typhoon Tea send away, The Amazing World of Doctor Who? Or was it one of the Dalek annuals? And it had a full-page spread of Dav Ross and what his chair did and the history of him as well that Terry Nation had written. So for him to turn up at like, the end of episode two with the, the hand suddenly starts moving and his, his eye lights up, that was like, a, oh, my God, you know, wow, you know, moment. Yeah, for me, that was just a... Oh my god, what is that? And that's really <laughs> scary. I didn't
0: like that at all. But that hand movement is really, really good. Yeah, covered in cobwebs and yeah. as it just like,
1: does that. I think this is really interesting listening to you guys talk about it this way because for me, you know, one of the biggest drawbacks of this story is Davros, because you know, he's kept back until halfway through the story. You know, mm. his first two episodes are Dr. Romana. Well, first episode is the Dr. Ramana trying to find a Dalek, and then episode two is the Dr. Ramana and the Dalek's trying to find Davros. Davros then comes in and is I mean, David Goodison does his best, but he's he's hampered really by the voice, you know, by you know not having his voice modulated like um like previously. So that really kind of just takes it away a little bit. I think he's yeah. he a, a much more sort of naturalistic performance than than before as well. Yeah,
2: um, so. yeah, I, I agree with that, and uh, I think one of the sound mixes that they've done for this collection yeah. is yeah. They, they've they've given him that modulation. Yeah, and it does improve his performance. It but really does. The thing that still works against him is that he's not very davros liking this story um terry nation really drops the ball with the characterization of him to say exactly. that he got it so right or whether that's the influence of robert holmes for genesis yeah and then this one he kind of like turns into the generic villain you know with lines like not me you fool you know like when the daleks are like you know can't see and stuff and it's like that, you know
1: yeah that's that's it more yeah, than anything doesn't quite work does it more than more than the performance by david goodison is the characterization the writing of davos who is just you know this is supposed to take place immediately after he's last seen in genesis you know he's been frozen and then he wakes up and he's a completely different character he's gone from being the sort of um you know mad scientist as it were to being the raven you know megalomaniac it's you can see where your know, Terry Malloy's pitching his performance from what David Goodison than Michael Wisher. So um, you know, it could have gone either way, really, depending on what Terry Malloy did with it. If he'd stuck more as, as David Goodison, we would have had a completely different Davros. But because Terry Malloy goes more um shouty and and whatnot then, you know, David Goodison is very much like the George Lazenby of the Davroses. <laughs>
2: Well, I think I don't know I don't know if David Gooderson's ever like answered this question or whether he actually watched Michael Wish's performance, but he does kinda of, like pitch it at that level, or whether he was told that this is what you need to like kinda of, like aim for. But like you say, you know, it's complete contrast to Terry Malloy, who does seize the role with both hands and starts to go, you know, knows that he can go over the top in yeah. certain like moments
1: yeah
0: but yeah it's um it's a good cast though i think generally on this this story so we've got uh peter straker as um the lead Movellan, whose name has um just escaped me oh commander Cheryl, that's right (laughs) and you've got lala ward doing some kick-ass fighting which we don't see very often (laughs) <laughs> knocking, knocking his, uh, knocking his arm off. Yes. which is amazing. Well,
2: I th- coming soon from character options, <laughs> yeah. Mavellan action figures with detachable arms. <laughs> I'd buy them. B and M soon, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> if you can get one. <laughs> yeah,
1: but yeah. I think the Mavellans have another sort of weak weak link in this. Um, they just all implausible really is is a credible threat when all you need to do is unplug their belt buckle then they fall down in a very very entertaining way don't get us wrong um but yeah there's there's a few few issues with this story um and i think the blu-ray is both um a blessing and a scourge to this story because you get that extra sound mix which puts the modulation onto Davros and gives you sort of Tristram Carey's, you know, soundscape, Ambient. you know, yeah. going through Skara, which really adds a hell of a lot to it. And but at the same time, you get the picture scrubbed up, which really highlights the deficiencies in the Dalek props and um, Davros as well. You know, Although
2: I will say, uh, watching it back again, um, it is fantastically directed oh, by Ken yes. Reeve. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he does that thing that David Maloney did when dealing with the Daleks. He decides the, the best way to film them in most shots is from the ground upwards, so you get that imposing stature of the Dalek, and so it looks more threatening yeah um and obviously i was quite surprised that i noticed like how many of the sets have got ceilings which you don't usually get yes. like yeah. uh, mm-hmm. any of the tv of that period um but yeah it's a shame like ken Greve was never invited back to direct for the show again because i think he would have been um like another grain Harper, really, um, and I know he went on to uh, direct and produce uh, Inspector Morse, didn't he? He did, yeah, a- yeah. He, he had a really good career after this, so he did all the yeah. sort
0: of top-end ITV detective series and things like that. So, yeah, it's one of those, another one of those cases of J and T throwing everything out. But if he'd carefully cherry-picked what he'd taken, yeah. then it could have been to the program's sort of uh, benefit, really. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, it, I think he, um, Ken Grieve, um, got use of the Steadicam for the first time. So they're able to do sort of a few more sort of um, camera shots, sort of a bit more fluid, particularly on the film work. So you could get out and yeah. and film things sort of handheld for the first time and, and things like that, which make a big difference. I mean, that's. So it's Doctor that's... Who innovating again against all the odds. 'Cause the location works
1: really superb, isn't it? And that really shines on the Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Um when that's in high definition though, the those locations you that fight with um Lala and, uh, and that we've mentioned, you know, it, it just dazzles, really.
2: Well, even just wandering around like the like kinda like the quarry bit and the like the the, the, the disused buildings and stuff. That's excellently shot as well, isn't it? Yeah, and it gives like that eerie vibe, doesn't it? Then you add in like the ambience of the the atmosphere and, like you say, the added um, extra sounds of Scarrow from like the first Dalek story that they put on one of the sound mixes for this um, release, and it really does like just you know bring out the atmosphere a bit more.
0: Yeah, so um, speaking of that quarry, um, the new making of documentary had a had a trip back there for some of the cast and crew, which was was good to see. So again, this is one of the one of the DVD um, that didn't really get a lot of extras associated with the story itself. So it's nice to have that redressed, I think, on the on the Blu-ray set. Yeah, that's that's
1: a good documentary, isn't it? That's one of the, the extras um, you know, just for the set, isn't it? And that's that's really, really good. Nice in depth, in depth documentary. There, I enjoyed that one.
2: Yeah, it's, it it is good that they are like going back and like filling in the gaps because um, I think we got so used to like a uh, making of documentary, like being on every single DVD release when they were first came out. That when one wasn't on there. And instead, you got like a puff piece about something else, and you kind of like you always like kind of like were a little bit disappointed when that DVD like uh, arrived through your letterbox or when you picked it up from like HMV or something. As in, like, well, it's not got as much on it as as some of the others. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Obviously, the other extras we've got from this is the behind the sofa with um, who's it? it's. Um, Colin Baker and Matthew Waterhouse together.
2: Yeah, Katie and um, Nicola Katie, as well. Yeah, Katie Never. and Nicola Bright. And
1: then you've got June Hudson, Graham Harper and Matt Irvin as well. Yeah, oh, lovely June Hudson.
0: She's so lovely. <laughs> yeah, she, it's always a joy to watch her. She's always just remembers everything and has such a lovely things to say about everyone she worked
2: with. And obviously Matt Irvin with his usual anecdotes about how cheaply made all the special <laughs> effects were, and you know how they used to like you know try and come up with um, big budget style effects for like you know two p and uh, you know a cup of tea from the BBC canteen.
1: What <laughs> they did—that's the thing. And I mean, this this really sort of saddens and disappoints me a little bit that these guys aren't sort of standing up and taking a little bit more credit for what they've actually done. Um, obviously, we've got. You know the the best story out of this season coming up shortly, which is Creature from the Pit, with erato in it. You know, and it all just because everyone else knocks Arato, they all are quite happy to sit there. And say, oh yeah, he was rubbish, and it was just weather balloons, and it looked like the giant scrotum, and all the rest of it. And you just kind of think, well, well, yeah, but what were you going to do? What were you going to do with that brief? You know, from David Fisher, of like the yeah. creature is a giant amorphous blob that is a mile wide. What? literally are you going to do in your bbc workshop you are going to do the best you can because you are absolute professionals who aren't going to come in and do half a job you are actually going to come and you know get the job done properly um so you know go go easy on yourself be proud of what you've done be proud that you've actually managed to make something that looks as good as it did because let's be honest for all you might think it looks you know like genitalia it could have looked a hell of a lot worse
2: well, I, I mentioned this on the um, interestingly on the podcast, uh, the tribute to Bob Baker, because we talked about the Invisible Enemy, and obviously one of the notable things about that story is the excellent model work by Ian Schoons, and um, how the comparison is between that and the updated special effects that they did for the DVD release, and it's like they actually replaced some of the model work with CGI, and and you kind of like. Why, why are you doing that? Because, yeah, replace all the lasers and stuff because they do look a little yeah. bit outdated and stuff. But some of that model work is absolutely superb, and I think it's on the the Nightmare of Eden um, documentary that's on this set as well, where um, Colin Mapsom and AJ Mitchell are saying, like, well, we would have usually have done all the spaceship footage on film, yeah. but we were told money was tight, and instead of having four days at um, Shepperton Studios, or wherever they used to film it, Ealing, um, we were told you need to do it in studio, and we did it within four hours. And actually, upon reflection, it yeah, you can tell it's video footage, but yeah. it actually looks all right, you know. Yeah. And they're a bit comp- more complimentary of their work, and yeah, like you say, they should be proud of what they did because the budgets weren't huge, were they?
1: Exactly. No, the...
0: not at all. And as we said, the budgets are being squeezed all the time by rampant inflation and being squeezed by the BBC as well. Mm. So it's amazing we got what we did. So, yes, mm-hmm. I can now reveal that <laughs> I made a contribution to this disc. Oh. <laughs> and I've is been you... keeping you two in suspense for the last day. about. I've, I've
1: figured it out. I've, I know exactly what it is. Go on, then. In the um, trailer for this box set, you are the hand of Davros.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, my hand acting's not up to scratch. (laughs) Uh, No. Um, So um, of the many sort of contemporary extras at the time, there's the 1979 launch trailer. And um, when the DVD came out, or before the DVD came out, um, there was a plea from the restoration team for anyone who'd got a complete copy of the trailer um, to get in touch, because they had a very good copy of most of it, but they hadn't got the introduction. So the first few seconds (laughs) of the 1979 launch trailer come from a copy that came from a very good friend of mine um, that I had a copy of. So it went down VHS Generations um but that that was me that's my contribution oh. to the dvd range Oy. so excellent well done so yes yeah cause... i never got a credit but that's fine
1: <laughs> well he has your credit now he your credit now because mm-hmm. i was going to mention that because that is you know when we're talking about were the daleks actually promoted there was that trailer wasn't there which which does doctor have...
0: awake
1: <laughs> <laughs> daleks never heard of them so yeah cool you well done
2: A little bit of Doctor Who history. Yeah, there we go. We want to make sure these things are as complete as they possibly can be. Well, of course. I'm sure, like, when Andrew Pixley does his next revision of, like, Doctor Who stories, he's going to stick (laughs) your name in there then. It's a Trap One exclusive, everyone. There we go.
0: (laughs) So, story number two takes us to Paris in 1979. I was going to say, coming back to Ken Greve. Um, <laughs> well, let's go back to Ken Greve, sorry. <laughs> I,
1: was, I was, when we were saying, you know, Ken Greve was never invited back, I was wondering, is one of the reasons because him and Douglas Adams gay crashed the shooting of City of Death <laughs> and then ran around Paris for what sounds like about 16 hours getting hideously drunk? They had a great time, didn't they? <laughs> they did, yes, they did. That's, that's, that. I loved that story um, that was that was an excellent one but yes Paris 1979
2: more of a table wine more of as a table wine <laughs>
0: <laughs> but not where you're uh, I may be biased but this is my favourite story of them all <laughs> So, this one made such an impact on me when I saw it the first time, and then the second time the following um the following year for the repeat that this was just the one that me and my mum both remember sort of watching absolutely vividly. It just stuck in my head, particularly the first cliffhanger, which is just amazing, and it's one I just come back to every time I feel a bit low. it's just
2: brilliant. <laughs> You can see why Russell T Davis, I think, chose it, didn't he? To show the potential of Doctor Who. Uh, isn't this the DVD he gave to, like, Julie Gardner and um, Lorraine Heggersy um, when he'd uh, been signed up to bring the show back? And he said, this is what I want. This is what I want, a modern version of this. And, and this is the story he, he showed them. Yeah,
0: because it does a bit of everything that the new series would do. So there's multiple time zones, there's things that don't, that you don't initially make sense of that c- become clear later on. It's funny and witty and beautifully shot. Yeah, And again, um, this is one that Graham Williams always said, look, he said, we're going to pump as much resource into this one as we can to show everyone what we can do with Doctor Who and how good we can make it with the money we've got if you give us a bit more if you could give us this this much money sort of all the time then we could do Doctor Who of this quality all the time and what I what what really amazes me is that it's it's got such a tiny cast there are very mm-hmm. few speaking roles in this story compared to, to normal Doctor Who. So, so they do all this, but with a small cast, sort of, but a
2: really high caliper cl- um, cast. Well, the location footage in Paris, which is absolutely beautiful, and and um, is wonderfully accompanied by the Dudley Simpson score, which even now, um, every time I've gone to Paris, I still hear myself going. Yeah, I've done that too. <laughs> It's just, it's just ingrained in your brain. But, yeah, the, there's not even any um, extras on the location footage. I think the person who they go up to, um, and it's dubbed over, isn't it, where they, they find out that the Mona Lisa has been stolen, was just the guy who manned the door, and they just said, do you mind if we just talk to you for a, a minute? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think they, I don't think they even paid him for anything. But, yeah, so there's no extras on the location footage. It's just... Tom and Lala like filmed running through Paris and yeah. taking in on like the the famous sites like the Eiffel Tower and then yeah, obviously and... you've got a very very small cast when they go back to studio mm-hmm. and film the rest of it. Yeah. yeah, but Catherine Schell and and Julian Glover
0: are just just wonderful and David Graham.
1: The model work as well um,
2: is yeah is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scaroth's ship. Yeah, there. Ian Scoons again. Yeah. Um I think it was his last work on the show actually. That that that's that, like spider-like spaceship which I, I absolutely remember as a kid that was yeah, me like too. a really iconic image. It's just yeah. the way its
0: legs lifted up and moved in when it it took off that was just really amazing.
2: Wasn't there a disagreement between was it Michael Hayes the director who kind of like had a pop once he saw the the model footage and said, "Well, that looks nothing like the spaceship that we shot in the studio."
0: <laughs> oh yes, yes. Because I think some of the inferences they're in the little, little the top. yeah, the tub, yeah. But it doesn't look like that at oh. all. <laughs> but by the time you That's realise it. that, that scene's over and done with.
2: <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, you don't see it again, do you?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so. Like I said, this is the one that I got on DVD um, so it would have been sort of around, you know, 2010, 2011, that sort of time. Um, watched it and and just didn't think that much of it, to be honest. Um, watched it once. Was a little bit disappointed because it's been hyped up so much by by the rest of fandom. Put it back on the shelf and didn't come back until, um, I thought hey, it was you that kind of prompted us to go back and watch it because you were so full of love of, of the story. So I have went back and sort of you know reappreciated appreciated it and re-evaluated it and think and yeah I can see where all the the love that comes you know from other people it's 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 I still think Creature of the Pit's a, a better story um but you know for for what it is it's it is it's got some beautiful dialogue hasn't it um you know David Agnew again completely. it's not a fantastic script <laughs> um with well, he's back against the wall, so credit to him. I wish he'd wrote more stories, to be honest.
0: Um, well, he did this and the classic invasion of time as exactly. well. So, well, yeah, two for two. Of my favourite. I mean, he's no Norman
1: Ashby, <laughs> but you know, he's he's really good. So, um, but it's 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 it's. Is it one of the more, more most quotable Doctor Who stories? Do we think? The, I think
2: I think it's up there, isn't
1: it? You know, you I know. think that that scene at the start of of episode two is. It's just so well written and it's so well performed by, you know, the the four the four leads there with with Tom and Lana and Catherine and Julian and Glover there. They just absolutely knocked that one out of the park. Um I think sort of the issues I had with this when I first watched it was there's a lot of location footage. So it does seem as if it's relying a lot on, you know, we're in Paris. Let's show all of Paris. Let's show all the sites and let's have a run and there. So it seemed a lot a lot of that. Um and I think I can see why people don't like this era based on Tom Baker's performance, because he is very close to putting it into clown territory at times. And I think this story really, he's got it down to a fine art. He's just on the right side for me of, you know, not going over top, over the top, but he's very close in this story. So those are the kind of things that, that you know, took me away from the story, and that but mean that it's not quite my favourite for the series. Um, but, you know, I can I can totally see why, why other people love it for the exact reasons that I don't, if that makes sense. Yeah,
2: yeah I mean, it's that thing that Douglas Adams always used to say. He said, you know, the worst thing that you could do when you get a script that has funny lines in it is play up to it and do silly voices and all the rest of it. And I think that's probably where something like, you know, Horns of Nymon falls down a bit. A bit, you know, which we'll get to later. But with this, you know, he plays it just on that right line of, yeah. of straight, um, you know, which is I think what it needs. Um, you know, thankfully, like the the small supporting cast don't like rise to the challenge of trying to act him off the screen, yeah. Either you know, again, Graham Crowden. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I no, you're we'll right.
2: Um, I got, there are. Are certain scenes that
0: um sort of stand out where where tom takes it completely seriously so when he has that conversation with the countess in part four um when he's trying to convince her that that her husband her husband is is an alien he's playing that completely straight oh, yeah. yeah and he i think he always gets a lot of stick for for what he's almost what he's not doing rather than what he is doing. And there are lots of moments through the season where he does take his performance right down yeah. at the right moments and does play it absolutely straight. I think in Destiny, he plays it a lot straighter than he's ever given credit for. Once he knows it's the Daleks, he levels his his performance yeah. down because the Daleks are... He knows they're the big,
2: big enemy, so... But he, he's like, like you say, he knows how to play it in certain scenes. You know, obviously, there's this pivotal scene. What a wonderful Butler! He's so violent, <laughs> you know. And then obviously, the re, the reply is, "Well, I don't think anybody could be that stupid." But obviously, you know, as when as fans as we're watching it, and I think when we watched it as kids, we would know that the Doctor was trying to like make. He was trying to put. He was putting on the act because he was trying to like get a gist of like what the villain of the week was up to. You know, and that's probably how Tom probably saw it and how he played it. And I think he's mentioned that in like interviews since as well. So the, the, it is, it's a fine line when you're dealing with something that's like, you know, very borderline comedic about, you know, do you start doing the Monty Python style voices and all the rest of it? Or do you like keep it straight as a die and let the dialogue make the jokes? Yeah. You know, which I think comes across. Um, well, in this story, and also, I think, like in Nightmare and Eden, there's some great lines in Nightmare and Eden that are just delivered as straight as a die, but yeah. they're absolutely hilarious.
0: Yeah, you know, that's and, how
2: you play it. Yeah, you know, like you work for Galactic, Galactic went out of business 20 years ago. Oh, I wonder why it had not been paid. You know, <laughs> that's perfect, classic gag, you know, but it's mm-hmm. played straightly so that you know it, it but it, you, know, you could have easily done a silly voice at that point, and I think it's probably a credit to you know somebody like michael hayes as a director to keep those actors in check and i know at, at this point in the show tom was the uh, top dog wasn't he yeah yeah you know he even Graham williams wasn't in, really in charge of the show because um gray macdonald the season before when they'd had a huge bust up and tom mm-hmm. wrote his resignation um gray macdonald said no no you're not resigning are you and got him and Graham Williams together and patched the, the argument up and backed the star rather than the producer you know probably in this day and age that probably wouldn't happen now because they'd probably just go well this star's being too problematic we can easily just get a new star you know, a replacement in because such and such is free and we can just like do it like Death in Paradise and you know just change the lead every <laughs> so often you know and yeah. obviously Doctor Who was a designed like by that point up to there but Tom Baker's at the like really the top of his powers and I think you can probably see why it came such a shock to him that probably John Nathan Turner stood up to him a lot lot more the following season and that probably then you know cemented Tom's reason to finally go well do you know what I've threatened to go the last three or four years I'm actually going to go because it's not my show anymore Mm -hmm.
0: No I think one of the things that they've They've worked Graham Williams particularly has worked out at this point is that the way to to get Tom to behave is to put him up against some classy actors. So if you've got someone of the calibre of Julian Glover coming in, then he's gonna behave himself because he's not going to be able to match them almost, or they're or, or they're a match for him. Yeah. And then that keeps him happy and keeps him on a on a good level. And I think a lot of the casting this year is is done with that in mind.
1: Yeah,
2: it would have been interesting to see like had John Cleese got a bigger role, whether or not the uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> that might have sent everything that. over the edge. <laughs> Look at I to say it's looking good. at the. Um, the Tom Baker and John Cleese skit from the um oh, yeah. from the
2: Christmas tapes that are on here, then, yeah, <laughs> maybe oh. not.
1: Uh, <laughs> is that that, that joke? It's oh, the one about,
2: can you sign this for mine? Um, that's terrible. That. I've got yeah, that he's out. blind. Oh, don't worry. I've not got that's, a pen. Oh, Tommy, signed it. That, the, it. I've,
1: I've got to say that's, that really jarred and I didn't yeah. enjoy that at all. That really just felt out of place, to be honest.
2: Um but well, much of the Christmas tapes are like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the if you can, if you know what to search for, they are up in their entirety yeah. on YouTube, and there's a lot of like non, what you'd call it, non PC material in there now. Yeah, you know, uh, not just like funny outtakes, which is how they started, but you know, proper kind of stuff <laughs> that you, in yeah. today's eyes, you just go, oh yeah. my god.
1: Yeah, I mean, like a funny outtake, I can get away with when he's like you know, call an adrig a name or something um before he regenerates then you know I can get away with that. It just felt very sort of punching down, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, but there is there is other things, other things that I enjoyed on this disc as well. Again, you know, having the upscale of the picture quality um made those those scenes of running around Paris a lot more enjoyable. It's a lot a lot um i obviously got the behind the sofa again. Um that well that little Easter egg, which is the you know, Douglas Adams telling the tale of how <laughs> the flew to France to ask a question
2: <laughs> about
1: the script and then just got drunk instead. That's
2: that was just you know, there's a great brand new um documentary about Douglas yes, Adams as well. Yeah, really, that was one of like the highlights of this, this whole set, wasn't yeah. it? That was just wonderful,
1: yeah. So that was that was really nice, um, you know, because it was it wasn't just like you know the, the people you'd expect but I liked how they'd went and got like these old friends and you know people that he'd you know been in bed sits in college with and the people he'd struggled with before he hit hit the fame with hitchhikers you know and spoke to those people rather than sort of like the obvious the obvious ones
2: that you would for this disc but yeah it was beautiful beautiful documentary and it comes with a revelation that him and uh, Lala Ward nearly decided to get together at one point and then decided... That
0: would have been a power couple,
2: that would have, uh, She'd have licked him into shape. No, yeah, I bet she thinks, if only I'd thought about that with Tom. If only I'd gone, no, no, this is a bad idea. <laughs> but Lala
0: always speaks so warmly of him, and to yeah. see her almost in tears... Talking about him at the end of the documentary was really moving, and sometimes you don't realise how much these friendships from that come from this silly little show really actually mean, yeah. sort of out there in the real world to the people who were involved.
1: Yeah, you mean you 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 kind of come to when we come to Shada. That was the thing that stuck out with me was who um, was the guy that plays Chris? What's his face in Shada? Um, oh, Daniel Hill. Yeah, who met his wife
0: Yeah, while, while yeah, making yeah, that yeah. show,
1: you know. So, um,
0: yeah, it's ripples in a pond, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, I like how everyone always says, Douglas Adams was
2: tall. <laughs> That's <laughs> the first thing everyone says about him. It's like the start of a hitchhiker's book, that not it? <laughs> Douglas Adams was tall. Really Very tall? Yeah. Tall. <laughs> <laughs> Just hear, hear it in Peter Jones's voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I thought that that was
0: just beautiful. Really, really nicely done.
2: Yeah, yeah, and obviously you get all the uh, the, the regular stuff that was on the the, the DVD uh, originally, but we've also got um, uh, two new commentaries from Tom Baker as well, which I haven't had a chance to listen to, but. He's done a, a brand new commentary for Parts One and Parts Four, hasn't he? On yeah. uh, for this Blu-ray he has, set.
0: But I did listen to the other new commentary last night. In fact, in oh, preparation man. for this, which is Lana Ward and Catherine Shell, with Matthew Sweet moderating, and that was just a joy to listen to. They were really, really good together. And there's a wonderful moment where they're 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 talking about because they both come from. Um, so the, the landed gen, uh, from the gentry, and and they're comparing where they are in the in the <laughs> sort of ratings of how high up royally are they?
2: <laughs> so, so close to Catherine the real wins. To <laughs> oh.
0: So yeah, so I, that, that I was, was, quite, really it was just, just a lovely sparky com, um, conversation, and it's so nice to hear two women talking about Doctor Who,
2: which we don't o- often get. So yeah. I, I didn't actually realise that was on there. I wanted just like noticing that in the booklet. I'll have to give that a go because mm-hmm. uh, Catherine Snell is uh, she's great and obviously, you know, she was um you know great in space nineteen ninety-nine as well. Yeah, and she does touch a lot on that. Uh,
0: there's a great is bit she- where she says, and um, yes, yeah, she said, Julian Glover wouldn't get into the mask and do that. And Matthew Sweet says, Well, but you you were you were put makeup for Space 1999. and she just turns around and she says, I wasn't the monsters, darling.
2: She's <laughs> probably talking about the bobbly things, actually. I don't yeah. know. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> so, no, that's well worth a listen, I think. so, And I, too, must go back and listen to the Tom Baker ones as well. So I ran out of time, despite having yeah. had months to do this set, but it's so packed with stuff. Well, that it's it, isn't it? It's, it's another actual,
1: you know, gem from from the collection, I think, you know, we haven't quite touched on that, but, you know, these box sets that we're getting, you know, we can point quibbles at them, you know, you can say, oh, it's missing this story, but we're getting so much, it's it's absolutely fantastic. I can't think of any other, um, you know, show where people would go to this effort to give this much to the fan base. Um, I mean, just look, even looking at the front, you know, that gorgeous, Artwork by Lee Binding, which we get every time, um, is another absolutely fantastic one. You know, the booklet inside, um, artwork on that, the artwork on the discs themselves. When you get into the disc and it's got the TARDIS console spinning round, you know, the fact that, you know, the likes of, you know, Chris Chapman and Toby Hadoop are going out and making new documentaries all the time, you know, tracking people down and... um putting heart and soul into this, you know, the, the, the love that goes into this, I think just needs to be, you know, absolutely applauded to, to the rafters. Well done. Well done. I mean, they
2: could have easily just like, just put the stuff that was on the DVDs and just like restored the picture of the, the actual, you know, Episodes and, you know, put that out in some nice packaging, but the, the, you know, again, you know, the restoration team or whatever the, the guys call themselves these days and, and like you say, Toby Hidoki as well and, and, and the others, they're just they're just taking it up another level. And I, I don't think there's any other TV series that, that is covered in this way, even like Star Trek's no. not been covered in this kind of like in-depth. No, the
0: no exactly. And it's yeah. also the fact that they go that extra mile to find the contemp the stuff that was contemporary. So all those snippets from Blue Peter and Animal Magic and Sort of just the trailers and the introductions and all of those those yeah. things that sort of put it in context for of the time
1: exactly. And sort of I'm, you know people are coming back, like Pete MacTye's coming in to direct a trailer for uh, yeah. What's the, what's that about? <laughs> Come on, yeah,
0: it's, with David Goodison, sort exactly. of twenty twenty two years, twenty three years after he he last played Davros. Exactly,
1: it's it's just amazing, really. Is I mean, my my in for these sets is is very much the picture quality. You know, I like, you know, the up, the upgrade the picture quality. Um after that it's it is like the special features. So but you know, and I would be happy with just a box, which is a Blu-ray with all the special features on yeah. it. But the fact that I am getting so much more out of it is just makes me well, it makes me a happy Geordie, put it that way.
0: <laughs> so next up is Fraser's favourite <laughs> from the <laughs> season. And we call it the pits. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I love this. I really love this. I think, like I said, I'd watched it, um, just brickboxed it last year the year before um, in various pandemic states or whatever, and I was just absolutely entranced from start to end. I think the reason that it works so well is because everyone's on the same page. You know, it's a comedy script that is pitched as a comedy by the cast, the crew, the director, everybody... <laughs> you know, knows exactly where they're going for on this one. And it's, you know, there's n- it's not over the top, although it is very pantomime It's not over the top. It feels, it does feel very sort of pantomime in as much as you could imagine it being put on on a stage. You know, you could imagine, like, going to the theatre and seeing, you know, these really heightened theatrical performances coming coming at you from, you know, from the stalls. So... It just works so well. I really like um, that it's Romana's first recorded story. So that that's like Lala Ward's first go at actually being Romana because I think she's written probably the best in this story throughout, this, throughout the rest of the season,
0: I think. She's written like Mary Tam. Yes. So does that lovely scene. Is that what you mean, Fraser? <laughs> it's, not so,
1: it's not so much that. It's, it's that she, in this story, that you have that scene, for example, where she meets the the Merry Men, because it does remind us of Made Marianne and Anna Merry Men, where, you know, the the capture and she's tied up barking orders at them, sit down, you will do as I'm told. And it's that sort of, like, authority that she has that she loses throughout the rest of the season. Um, You kind of come to Nightmare of Eden, which follows this, but is recorded uh, much later, where she's kind of pulling faces and jumping over mandrels that are on the floor, and you kind of think she's, she's now becoming more of the um stereotypical doctor who companion of you know the um you know the girl in danger and being scared of things and that unfortunately comes to a head i think in Sharda where she is essentially mansplained to by um what's his name Skagra Skagra, Skagra yeah you know Skagra basically puts a PowerPoint <clears throat> on and mansplains the the plot to her which is you know, so miles away from, from how,
0: you know, even any the and of Naiman, how much she drives well, that story forward. Yeah, Horns of Naiman, she's, she's carrying the story, basically, exactly. isn't she? While, she while Tom Baker logs yeah.
1: around. Yeah, so there's, there is, don't get us wrong, there is a lot of, um you know, good bits for Marana throughout the season. Season, You know, City of Death, will never talk really much about how this is just Tom and Lala's big date. In Paris, you know, the chemistry between those two and that story is absolutely fantastic. But this is the one for me that really lands um, with Romana. And then you have, again, a really sort of tight supporting cast. I um, have Lady Adastra, who is just
0: amazing. My Francis, yes. Just... No one can bark, point the dog at the rock! <laughs> like she can. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: But and again, it is just highlighting just how good the writing is in this this season, and how you know the douglas douglas Adams effect you know the that line um that we had at the start about the you know the future foretold the past explained the present apologized for it's it's just such wonderful witty dialogue. point the dog at the rock it's just every story throughout the season is peppered with fantastic dialogue like that so um right. <laughs> uh, I could go on for another half an hour but you no, know, you guys talk about a picture from the pit
0: How do you feel about it, Jason? Uh, I'm not as enthusiastic <laughs>
2: about this story as, <laughs> um, as I, I'm not as dismissive of the story as uh, Christopher Barry was uh, when he was still with us um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think David Fish's intention was to write it as comedically uh, as... As it comes out, I think we obviously this is the first one that went into production. Um, bar the ending of Armageddon Factory, it's the first kind of like story that has Douglas's like fingerprints on it as script editor. Um, and I think it really shows. And I think it's that distinction, isn't it? Whereas, like, yeah, if viewed as a comic pantomime, it's a great runaround, if viewed as a trying to like, you know, possibly a. A, I don't know a, like a scary adventure it doesn't quite pull it off although K-9 and the the you know the Wraiths are brilliant the the jungle in Ealing Studios is fantastic it's the last K-9 really really, really really good that. and whilst I was watching it it was just like because Kinder's just been repeated on um forces tv hasn't it as part of a run of classic dot two stories and it always kind of like breaks my heart a little because i love kinder it's like why just couldn't they have the budget to have just filmed it at you know on film you know and just that jungle would have like looked so much better yeah and it would have looked something like this does because this is up to the standard of the jungles that we see in like Planet of Evil and though and The Face of Evil and those stories, you know.
0: Yeah, it's so and it's the attention to detail that they make everyone sweaty. Even Tom <laughs> yes. is they're they're sort of making everyone they're making it look hot for the first time yeah. in a, a hot and sweaty jungle.
2: Yeah, and obviously, you know, Irato um is the kind of like the the phallic elephant in the room. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I'm sure Matt Irving says it was never intended to come out like that. And um, you do have to feel a little bit sorry for Christopher Barry because he was there at the beginning. You know, he co directed, you know, The Daleks, the second serial. He directed some absolute classics like, um, you know, The Brain of Morbius and The Demons. And he just kind of like, this was his last contribution to the show. But you know, again, it comes back to that thing. Is like I think this is really shows where it's like Tom had really taken over at this point, and I think there's a little bit of um, production history in the notes uh, of the booklet where it says like, you know, this is where they, after the bust up in Armageddon Factor, coming back to the for season seventeen, um, Graham MacDonald the head of serials, you know, sat. Tom and Graham in a room and basically kind of like read the right act like t- t- to them both. And you know, but it's, it still shows. But there are positives, like I say, the film work is excellent. And we get the wonderful Jeffrey Baildon, oh, who, yeah. who was
0: fantastic. Magic he, and it's
2: such a shame that he, he wasn't really ever, you know, in, in the series again, you know, because he's one of those actors that I think would have been used many a time, you know. Yeah. And this is a guy who, who was. Offered or was on the shortlist for the first Doctor originally, wasn't he? Um, I think way back in the day. Um, and yeah, and he's a fantastic actor, and you know, it, it's really his only contribution to the the show, so it's worth watching for that. Yeah, I and mean, you
0: can tell that him and Tom are getting on really well. They're they're do those scenes of them walking round the mines are really really good. They're really well played. The two of them are, are working really well together. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's it's a good one. And this is sort of one of the discs where we haven't really got very much that is new added.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a little bit a little bit sad. I would have liked um a bit more on this one. I would've liked uh, you know, I'm 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 just being greedy now because I've you know been given so much. I'm a spout child, I'm a spout child and I want more, more, more. So yeah, I would mm-hmm. really have liked another, you know, making a documentary on this one. You know what we have got. Um, obviously, we have got that um, behind the sofa, so we do get Matt Irvin to give his his point of view across on um, Erato which it, it is what it is. Erato isn't it? It's a giant squid. You
2: know, well, the the show's history is littered with things like this. You know, obviously, there's a Worries of the Deep podcast coming up soon, and I'm sure we'll be saying the same things as what they say about Erato as as you know they say about the Merker. It was a great concept, yeah. but you know, just the budget just doesn't do it yeah. justice. Just with. not quite there, is it? So Yeah, no, no. <laughs> well, it's um, David brealy's first um, real story is canine, isn't it? Yes,
0: yes. it is. Yeah. The camp canine has
2: arrived, <laughs> mistress. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it always amazes me because I think this is where uh, canine was the thing in Doctor Who that I loved most of all at this point. I've, Absolutely, as a four-year-old, loved him to pieces, had the talking canine for Christmas and things like that. I, I absolutely adored him. And yet I never remembered David Brearley's canine voice at all,
2: which is, is kind of odd because he was my first. Yeah. So Yeah, I, I don't even think I realised that the voice had changed, to be quite mm-hmm. honest. It's not like they changed it radically like they did with Tweaky and Buck Rogers where it went from Mel Blanc mm-hmm. to... Like a female voice in the second series. <laughs> and you'd be like, I remember everybody at school, like when that second series of But Rogers started going, What the hell's happened to T-T-T-O? He's not biddy 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 anymore. He's like, Aye. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, he went oh, completely over my head that uh, the, the voice had changed for uh, season 17. And we do get a nice little interview with him, which is, is quite mm. nice because we don't
0: hear from him very often. On the whole DVD range because he it passed away. I think by the time most of the DVDs had come round, so it's really nice to sort of see him interviewed and speaking so fondly. I think of of his time on the show.
1: Yeah, he's, he's another bit of a, a George Lazenby one, isn't he? Because he's like, it's not that he's bad; it's just that others are more popular. Exactly, you, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, because you're, you're obviously you're the the big K nine fan. Um sorry. so. Do
0: you enjoy David Bowie? Is he? Yeah, I like. I like the way he makes K nine even prissier and camper than John Leeson does, which is quite. <laughs> that's quite a high bar. He's he's raising all from there. So, and um, uh, the I mean, he's he does get some some magnificent um moments. And I do love the uh, the bit where he says, Madam, I am not made of tin in this story. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, things like that. So, uh, yeah, I think, think he's fine. I I don't really have a problem with him. I do remember seeing these stories again, um, sort of in the early 90s, and it just sort of, the first time, really taken by surprise. I was not expecting him to yeah. sound like that. Again, I think the memory had just cheated, and I think... Sort of through the books because I was so more aware of John Leeson's version of K9 that I just imagined that was what K9 sounded yeah. like. So this was coming back, was oh, okay, right, I've just got to get used to this again.
1: <laughs> it's, it's funny, you know, like, stories like this and Nightmare in Eden and, and Megalos in the following series just really highlighted to me um, just exactly how much K9's batteries run on plot. Yes. <laughs> 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 you know you can sort of blast away for hours in Sharda and you know say, like oh two little squirts and batteries are flat Need I need yeah. to plug in no I can recharge myself no I need to plug in no uh, it's just yeah whatever's most convenient for the plot
0: Yeah I think our other big new thing on this one was Lala Ward remembering season 17 which was incredibly long which I wasn't yes. expecting at all and very in depth and I think it was an interview that she obviously recorded yeah. a number of years back because a lot of the the clips appear in in also, subsequent documentaries. documentaries. But it was really okay. really interesting. So always like hearing her her stories of um, I loved this season and I didn't like the next season when it's um, being made for fourteen year old nerds. <laughs> so oh. which she always trots out. So. Oh, John Nathan Turner. <laughs> she <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. <as> well. <laughs> yeah. She's always got a good word to say for Graham Williams.
2: Yes, yes, that's true, yeah.
1: I enjoyed the, the Animal Magic um feature on this as well. Um I don't know if you guys watched that, which was Tom Tom Baker in character talking about different wildlife and oh yes. in- do you
0: remember the Wirren? Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's got it's in the stocks. Totally, you know, I really I thought that was really good fun as well. Uh, enjoyed that one.
2: It's nice, it's nice when it used to pop up like that. I remember like, you know, the episodes of uh, Disney time and stuff, you know, where like Tom would like, you know, pop up and like present it and do it in character. Yeah, always you know? in character. It was always really cool like as a kid. You know. I remember when the the I think it's the same year as like uh, the book tower started, I think, didn't it, in this year? That the uh, the book review thing that he did for children's TV on ITV, I remember being excited about that, and then being quite disappointed that it was the, it wasn't the Doctor <laughs> hosting the show. It was Tom Baker. Who's this that, guy? was yeah. boring. <laughs> <laughs> Swiftly turning back over to BBC One for Scooby Doo or something.
0: So yes, so next up is the Nightmare of Eden, which is a story I absolutely door and i know it's clumsily made in lots of ways it's clumsily acted in lots of ways but i love it to absolute pieces
2: yeah i rewatched it for the show uh for this podcast uh with the new effects as well um and yeah i i i, I bloody loved this <laughs> i bloody loved it as a kid You know, everybody goes on about the mandrels and how stupid they are, and it's like, yeah, to an extent they are, but when you actually, like, look at them in isolation and when they're filmed in, like, the the Eden set, um, they're bloody scary. Yeah, there's one one bit where one just pops up suddenly, unexpectedly, and just, wow! (laughs) Yeah, it's that old adage of Doctor Who. It's like, you know, turn the lights down, you know. Yeah and yeah this show had a huge trouble production like Alan Bromley like we said you know his first directorial uh, thing and he had a big fallout with Tom and either walked out or was sacked and Graham Williams like took over uncredited as as director for the rest of it after the first studio session and and it's like, you know, even Graham Williams, you know, could, could have realised they could have turned down the, the lighting a, a little bit in those corridor sets, you know. But it, it is a fantastic tale. And as I mentioned in the um, the Bob Baker tribute podcast, um, it's probably the only um, time that Doctor Who's really tackled the subject of drugs. Um, it hasn't really tackled it, bar um, Russell T. Davis's um, New Adventure Damaged Goods. Um, and I don't think any, many big finishers stories have, have ever like kind of like, tackled the subject and and it's that, again we're talking about that fine line of comedy and knowing when to play it straight and stuff but the, the stuff where they're talking about Viroxin uh is played absolutely straight as a die because they know how obviously they've got the serious messages that you know they're putting out you know to to the viewers yeah and uh, you know it, it's quite a quite a sobering subject for a doctor who really when you think about it. It is. And I
1: think that's where it sort of it kind of does fall down a little bit for me is because there are quite a it's not just the drugs. There's a lot of serious messages in this. There's obviously the drugs, the rocks and there's sort of like the environmental side of it of um probably oh, should remember people's names. Who's the 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 you know guy with the machine. Trist. Trist. Yes, yes. Yes. Trist. In the glasses. (laughs) And the (laughs) accent. (laughs)
2: In the crystal. Yeah. No reason whatsoever. (laughs) You wouldn't think I was watching just a couple of hours ago. (laughs) It's like he's doing Peter Sellers' version of a German officer. It's it's, it's very Dutch. He's seen Peter Sellers doing Parkinson the week before and decided, that's how I'll play it.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, it's, it It's a very Dutch accent he's coming out with, I think. But, um, yeah, so they've got, you know, the environmental side of him, you know, you know, ravaging landscapes to put in his crystal. You've got sort of like the, you know, the side of, you know, zoos and animal welfare and that sort of so You've got some really heavy, weighty subjects, but it's just pitched so, you know, high camp with, with the accents yeah. and the, oh, my arms, my legs, you know, so... The reason I don't rate it higher is literally because of that mismatch between the content and the delivery. You know, for yeah, when I'm saying yeah. that, you know, Creature from the Pit, it's pitched at a level.
2: It's consistent all the way through. Exactly, you know, everyone's
1: yeah. going at the same level. This, it's it's very much like Bob Baker's trying to tell a serious tale. You know, Douglas Adams has come and sprinkled his magic because, again, there's those lovely lines, isn't this? What's, what's the one? Um, it's inexplicable. Well, how do you explain it? Explain it then. <laughs> nothing's oh no, nothing's inexplicable. But explain it then. It's inexplicable. It's just again <laughs> such fantastic dialogue. Um the mandrels themselves, I've got no issue with the mandrels. Um that's not my my thing whatsoever. especially affecting Doctor Who. Do what you want. I'm never gonna slate them. Um I really love the cliffhanger part one, where the mandrel pops out of the <laughs> of the hatch. That is like really you know, because you don't see the full thing, you just see the face, you know. It's, yeah it's a real shock moment. So that really works. Um so yeah, there's there's a there's, there's a lot there's that um it's a very sort of um Agatha Christie feel as well of the who done it, who's going around, because you've got that guy that's in the Eden scape, who again whose name I've forgotten, sorry, everyone Um you know, running through the train. But it's not the train, it's the ship, and it's like a train. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very uh um, yeah, yeah. it felt very proto Terror of the Vervoids.
0: Yes. You know, yeah. it's very yeah. similar yeah. setting, actually, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And very I, similar ship.
1: Yeah, that sort of art deco style to it, um and that sort of real Agatha Christie Who Done It vibe to it. So um, you know, for all that I'm you know, I I'm very conscious now that I am saying a lot of negative things about this season, but you know, I'm nitpicking because everything is really good, yeah you know i'm only nitpicking because there's things that i like more than other things if that makes sense yes mm-hmm. um, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. there was yeah there was fantastic i think emotion. it's a really high concept script and yeah. um there are some i think david Daker is particularly outstanding particularly uh going from sort of the very stalwart captain that we've seen a hundred times before oh no look to camera (laughs) and then but then you see him playing um Rick when he's high yeah and then you see him when he's at his low and that scene between him and Lala Ward is is really adult and really quite scary yeah and it's played absolutely for real but they're playing that for real and then you've got Louis Fiander up in the up in the gods (laughs) With his, with his <laughs> stupid accent And this is it's such a shame Because if we'd had yeah. Christopher Barry directing this And got everyone Or Michael Hayes And everyone suddenly on the same page And it's all pitched perfectly Then I think it would be Even more highly regarded than it is
2: Yeah And, and um, I think it, The thing that struck me Obviously uh, Watching it again Was um, The difference between doctors which sometimes doesn't really manifest that much because essentially the doctor as a character kind of like stays the same throughout the whole history of the show but then obviously each actor brings his like unique take to it or her unique take to it um, but the device that Trist has is very very similar to the miniscope that's in Carnival yes. kind of all monsters and then you kind of like it only occurred to me when I was re-watching it going hold on I remember the third Doctor being absolutely outraged that the miniscope was being used and like what it did, and then it, <laughs> the complete opposite. You've got the fourth Doctor going, "Oh, it's really good that. Oh, oh, have you done this to it? Oh, that'll improve it." And it's like you know, kind of like it's it's a very jarring kind of like difference between like the two characters, where one's like, "This is an abomination and it should not be used." <laughs> and let's destroy them all and make sure that it's, like, destroyed because, you know, uh, they're outlawed by, you know, the Time Lords. And, like, this version is like, oh, no, actually, I really like what you've done here. And then obviously finds out that it's been used for the purposes of, you know, smuggling drugs. And it's the whole, you know, um, kind of like to fund his experiments by, you know, selling the Veroxin, you know. It, and it's a contrast there between the, the two... Characterizations of the Doctor, which I found interesting, because obviously Bob Baker, you know, is like one of those writers that you know went through the Pertwee era, through to like nearly the end of the the Tom Baker era. So, um, again, whether it's down to like you know script editing or anything, or somebody just not realizing, no, but but you do get you do get the same sort of feel as Carnival of Monsters, where they're jumping into the
0: TV. And whereas Pertwee's wandering around the back workings, Tom's gone into the image, which, again, is such a meta idea because he's already on TV, but
2: now he's jumped into another TV. (laughs) as well, isn't it, to episode three? Rather than the standard, like, oh, the monsters are after us, it's like, let's jump into the image, and Mm. Romana's like, well, what will it do? I don't know, let's, let's find go. out. And we jump in and it's like, sting, credits. Yeah. it. And it's like the first cliffhanger to, co- um, to Creature from the Pit,
0: which completely wrong-foots you by the Doctor jumping down, the, well, yeah. into the danger, yeah. which you're not expecting at all. It's that the Doctor doing something completely unexpected and yeah. being one step ahead, hopefully, of everyone else. And then having to desperately try and find his way out of what he's got himself into.
1: Yeah, and I, th- I think it's interesting that the Doctor ultimately uses the machine to scupper Trist. You know, he's he's hoisted by his own potato, doesn't he? Because he's, you know, he tries to escape, but he just plonks him back in the machine, hands him over the facilities, and kind of says, "Yeah, get Lock him out." Yeah. Um, so I wonder if there's sort of an element of, again, when we were talking about. You know, city of death. If the doctor is playing it down, you know, he's not. You know, coming in all guns blazing as as per, we are sort of like tenant would be, of you know the moral outrage and and whatnot. He's just been. Yeah. He's just given. You know, he knows the situation. Give him enough rope, and we'll we'll let him hang himself. Uh, a little bit. That was a bit more my take on it.
2: Oh I have to say Tom's really good at the end where obviously Trist is trying to justify his actions of like what you did and, and Tom's just staring, yeah, ignoring him and just said, Go away, go yeah. away. I thought that that's played excellently, you know. Again, you know, in a in a script where you've got like some ups and downs and some comedy stuff and yeah, it's yeah. like it's played straight as a die. Yeah. yeah.
0: Compared to oh my arms, my legs, my everything <laughs> minutes <laughs> earlier. He's yeah. he's all over the place in this one.
1: Um, so the features on this one is on Bob Baker. It's the Matthew Sweet interview.
2: Yes. Um, um, and obviously Bob Baker sadly left us, didn't he, yeah. uh, last November. Um, so it doesn't say when this was filmed. I presume obviously the discs were printed well in advance before they could put a memoriam yeah. like mm-hmm. credit on there. Um, but, you know, he comes across as jovial. It, I did find it amusing that Matthew Sweet is trying to crowbar more information out of Bob Baker because Bob Baker's is probably so used to telling these stories and these anecdotes that like he kind of like he skips a lot of it at first and he says, "Oh well, you know, I met Dave Martin, yeah. sold him a packet of fags in the shop, like, and then we became friends. Da da da, da, da. We wrote for Doctor Who, and then Matthew Sweet's friend to go, well, no, there's a bit more to that." <laughs> <laughs> The information on him, and he's like... And, you know, bless him, he, he gets there in the end, but it does take a while. I yeah,
0: think I think that's, that's been the joy of all these Matthew Sweet interviews so far, is yeah. that he's really pushed the people that he's interviewed to not give the convention anecdotes and give that little bit extra and go a bit deeper than than he, they might have done before.
1: Yeah. it. I did get a sense of awkwardness at the start of the interview, and for me, it seemed very much like... Um, it was the fault of Dave Martin because Matthew Sweet was asking Bob Baker a lot about Dave Martin, and it felt sort of like, well, if, if this was me, if I'd come to do an interview and you're asking us about someone else, then you know, and I'm trying to tell you about my like, and he kept bringing it back at the start back towards Dave Martin, and I just thought, hmm, yeah, this, you know, let Bob Baker tell the story of Bob Baker, and. Yeah, yeah. I suppose there's an element of that, isn't there? Yeah, but you know, otherwise, yeah, another quality, quality interview there.
0: Yeah, and you got to get, got to see his two dogs meeting, which is was an absolute joy at the end. With <laughs> the voice work from John Leeson, yeah. as well. yeah. yeah. So yeah, and um, as as probably as you probably mentioned, he is Doctor Who's only Oscar-winning writer so far. So. Yeah, I mean, he's got a a wonderful pedigree, and he goes out on a high. I think <laughs> writing wise, that wasn't that wasn't even meant to be a pun. Sorry, Mark. Mark will uh, Mark will enjoy that. So that's why, yeah.
1: Uh Jason, you mentioned that you watched this with the uh, special effect on the updated special effects. Yes. Um What did you make of those?
2: Uh, I thought they did a good job. They didn't like obviously because the original special effects were done on. Uh, video, yeah. like they mentioned in the thing, which which occasionally you did get. I think Blake 7 did more of its effects on, on video towards the end of its so, like, run than what Doctor Who kind of did. Um, although there's quite a few instances, I think, in some of the 80s shows, isn't there, where they've, they do them on on Yeah, video things tape. like um, Terminus um, and Fault of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah well, the cheap stories uh, generally. Um, but yeah, th- th- the stuff that really, really works is like the replacement of the lasers with K nine yeah. and stuff. Uh, that that really is good. But I thought they did a good job of doing it, like the CG uh, rendition of, of the ships, and certainly the collision works yeah. a lot better. Yeah, you can see what um, what they were were aiming for. I think yeah. that they couldn't yeah. quite pull off. Going back to the original, the original, you can't really get the intention of what kind of like they're doing yeah. with. The shot until you actually land, then get the doctor and Romana landing, and then seeing that the the ships have phased together, you know, and then explaining it to the audience. But I thought, yeah, I thought um, there were nice improvements, yeah. not intrusive this time. Yeah, I mean, I watched. Um,
1: you know, I started watching it with the with the new special effects on. To be honest with you, that's not my thing at all. You know, mm. um, I generally tend to prefer seeing it how nature intended as it were i'd watched um, yeah. i'd put this special effects for destiny the daleks on as well because they, they come from the, the original disc um not not done for this blu-ray but you know those were a little bit more conspicuous you know yeah i don't think those have
0: aged terribly well it's kind no. of like oh
1: the Mavellan ships now we've got a sparkler coming out the exhaust and you know it, <laughs> you think if they were updating the dalek Death Ray effect, you would bring it more in line with something like Remembrance, or you know have that sort of like skeleton effect, perhaps. Um, so it yeah. did job a little bit, whereas with this, it didn't. It did feel a lot more
2: um, complementary to the story. Yeah, I mean, I think what they're trying to do is obviously do new effects for at least one of the stories yeah. when it's coming out as the collection, as well as putting the the updated effects that were put on the DVDs as well. Yeah. Now, obviously, the ones they're going to do for the collection are going to be in HD, aren't they? Yeah. Whereas, like, probably a lot of the updated CGI stuff they did for the original DVD releases were probably going to be in standard definition. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see, obviously, if they do go back to tweaking some of them. I mean, the one that really... um, comes to mind is the uh, the updated effects for the Time Warrior at season 11 yeah. when they do that they actually do that like a CG castle at the end which at the time looked bloody awful <laughs> you know so whether or not hopefully they'll go back to that or whether they just plough back all that CGI budget into doing CGI dinosaurs for Invasion of Dinosaurs hopefully <laughs> <laughs> so
0: Next up, it is I, (laughs) Soldy, My Bond! Yes, Um, for a long time, voted possibly the worst Doctor Who story until Time and the Rani came along, until the Twin Dilemma came along, until Time and the Rani came along. So it has had. Dimensions in time. So, um, yeah, and, and it's still um, hugely disliked by a vast proportion of people. But, yeah. It's good. It's, good. it's, good. it's nothing
1: wrong with it. It's it's a no. good bit of fun. And this is the thing with this series is it's fun. You know, there's not yes. a single story in this series which is, you know, dull in any way, shape or form. You know, there's excitement and, you know, if nothing else, bits that you can enjoy laughing at um in this series, but this this is just a fun little tale, isn't it? Um I think you know people will disagree with me on this, but I think Graham Crowden gives the single greatest um, support <laughs> performance of any actor in any episode of Doctor Who bar possibly Paul Darrow and Timelash.
2: In just... any episode of Doctor Who?
0: <laughs>
2: yes <laughs> it's just and he, he was um, on the shortlist for the Fourth Doctor at one point, wasn't he?
0: Yeah, and we thought Tom Baker went over the top. <laughs> Imagine where we might have been with Graham Crowden.
1: He's, he's so over the top. He's come back round to the bottom again. To be honest,
2: um, yeah, like you said, it is. It, upon, like you know, going back to the story, it is a it's a, a nice little romp. Yeah. It's a run around, but the thing that always struck me from this story. It, is that it's the perfect audition piece for a female Doctor because essentially that's what Romana does in yeah. the story. Yeah. She's the Doctor whilst, like, you know, Tom Baker go, goes elsewhere and um, hams it up with Brian Crowden and dicks about in the TARDIS <laughs> for most of the story. Yeah, she, Lola Ward, absolutely carries the
0: story. She does all the great, all the doctory things that you expect. She gets the great big showdown with the villain at the end. She gets the side trip to Anf, which is very much like the doctor's sidestep into to, to Italy in the Renaissance in City of Death, where she finds out what the actual plot is. Um, she gets to confront the um, the uh, captain of the ship, which is a despicable worm. Scum, <laughs> meddlesome hussy. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and, and absolutely, she is the lead of this story, and I think they do carry this on into the Leisure Hive as well. She yeah. does much the same things in the Leisure Hive as she's doing here, and she does it brilliantly. Yeah, it's it's, it's
1: again, it's got like wonderful. Lines, isn't it? It's what this it? Sol says, start at the start and end at the ending. Something like that. It's you know, it's again really good dialogue. Um I, I I like how it is sort of like leaning into that sort of Greek mythology. So you know it it could have done it a bit more. Um you know, with like the the way that the walls shift and whatnot, and it's more like a labyrinth with the
2: minotaur in the middle. Yeah, well it's like anthony reed's speciality isn't it since he, he was when he took over as script editor um he he kind of like obviously you know horror homages yeah. were off the off the not allowed anymore by uh, command of the upper uh-huh. management of the bbc so um you know the, they milk the mythology don't yeah. they with like in underworld and obviously you know um, Armageddon factor and you know let's do some classic literature, Androids of Tara. So, you know, it's no surprise that Anthony Reid, when he gets the chance to actually, you know, write a story as well, that he kind of like minds the the Minotaur myth. But again, going to um, the actual monsters in this story, and again, you know, much derided, the Naimon, with their um, oversized heads and their black leotards and their platform shoes... I absolutely loved them as <laughs> yeah, a kid. me too. They were scary, but I thought they were a great design. They've and, got a great like, voice. Yeah. Their voices are really beautifully modulated. And as we know from the Daleks, you know, after battle is the voice yeah. is the key, isn't yeah. it, you know, for a monster. Exactly. And the idea originally
0: that they didn't have the budget for was that the heads were actually sort of like, masks they would reveal something else not quite so intimidating or whatever underneath so but yeah i mean um again um all kudos to june hudson who is going all out to create an interesting monster and using incredible different materials and beautiful oh, wow. costume for lala wards this yeah. week as well so one of her her best there's, has been immortalized in toy form, which is always a joy. And yeah, and it's if nothing else, as Fraser said, it's fun. Yeah.
1: I mean you know, it's it's, it's kind of like we talk about the name of talk about the Was You know, does a Doctor Who monster need to be scary? To
0: no, be it just needs to be a monster. Oh my, oh, They've oh. got a great plan, and I think that's a, a really well Really well thought out idea that they they infiltrate a civilization with a single um, sort of representative of their race to to basically get use all their power and resources, use that all up, and then jump off to the next planet yeah. and do the, exactly
2: the same. Effectively, it's very similar plot to the Pirate Planet, isn't it? It's exactly what the the uh, the pirate um, oh, captain yes. was doing. You know, materialising round a planet, yeah. drain it of all its resources and then bugger off and move to the next one, yes. you know. Meanwhile I'll dig a black hole on their doorstep.
1: <laughs> not not so many special features on this disc. Um the one that did surprise us popping up was the um the Green Williams documentary.
2: Um which... uh, yeah, because I think that was originally on the Season sixteen yes, DVD box set. Yeah, it from the reboss operation, I think, wasn't it? I, yeah. Was it Crow? Especially. Or was it Reboss? It was it was it, it was on one of the it it was it was time, on, though, yeah. wasn't it? it? Was so, that box, yeah, yeah, somewhere it on that, that, like, that
1: yeah. set. So it's kind of been moved from there onto this
2: disc. For, well, I suppose
0: it either belonged on his first story or his last story, really, so it had to be one of the two. So I yeah. maybe because there isn't a, a making of documentary on on this disc, so yeah. this one didn't even get a new one. I think because no. so few of the people who were involved with the story are still around. Sort of certainly yeah. from the key personnel, so you haven't got Anthony Reid, and you haven't got Kenny McBain, and you haven't got Douglas Adams, and you haven't got Graham Williams. There aren't many people left to tell the story. Tell the story. Really, yeah. it just it just makes you
1: kind of wonder what's what's going to be. When we get to season sixteen, what is going to go in the place of that documentary?
0: I don't know. I mean, I was very happy to see it again because that is my oh, yes. all-time favourite documentary on the DVD range. Yeah. I just thought is a beautiful um,
2: retrospective of my favourite era of Doctor Who, and it, I love the introduction as well. Like, here is a clock. You know, that yes. play school-like uh, style introduction mm-hmm. that it does and it, again it, it's I, I love those kind of era documentaries that, that, that the, the show's done um, and I love like revisiting them like like the uh, Trials and Tribulations yeah uh, documentary that was on the season 23 box set you know because that tells another like story of another troubled time mm-hmm. the Colin Baker era and you know and although this one was more successful ratings wise I and mean, in still the public perception and you know best ratings ever for this season, um, you know, it was still a very troubled production behind the scenes. And it, I love delving into that kind of stuff. But yes, otherwise, mostly we've
0: got sort of lots of archive material, lots of interviews with Lala Ward, who was obviously on the promo um, circuit for around 79 and 80. So she is is there all over the place doing all the shows, Swap Shop, Nationwide, Ask Ask usually in her Destiny of the Daleks costume, which they get, yep. which she wheels out all the time. But my favourite extra on this disc was Tom Baker at Panopticon in 1997, <laughs> which had me howling all the way through. He was, it was I'm like crying. Tom Baker's stand-up. He was just on absolute cracking form.
1: That and it was really just amazing. Me. That threw me when I watched. it. I was like, "Oh, I, I, you know, Tom Baker." And then obviously he's coming out. I was like, with a bag, and I'm like, "What?" I was like, "Why? Why is Tom Baker doing stand up? And what's going on?" now? And it was it really confuses for a little while. But he obviously got into it and started enjoying it. And then, um, you know, sort of like the questions at the end as well, where he's just kind of like, you know, giving some very politician answers to 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 questions. Who was but, your yeah. favorite
0: monster? Well, I married one of them. <laughs> 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 that's usually Lala's answer to that. Isn't it? <laughs>
2: Who's your favourite monster on Doc Two, Tommy? <laughs> yeah,
1: that was good though. That was that was good fun. Was just...
2: And then obviously because this is like an end of an era, really, isn't it? Because it's Dudley Simpson's yeah. uh, last contribution yes. to the show. So we get another retrospective of these um, stuff that he did like towards the latter end of the seventies. So that's another welcome addition.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and he doesn't really go out on a high, and I think maybe Sharda might have been, been one that uh, um really, sort of inspired him the same way that um City of Death had inspired him earlier in the season. So we'll never know,
2: sadly. He's still with us, isn't he? No, no, he died a couple of years back. Oh. All oh, right. Okay. I know because he, he moved to Australia, didn't he? And he was like obviously. Based over there for yeah, they they a long time
0: yeah he did he was certainly around for the fiftieth because he was at the Albert Hall for the Doctor Who prom where they played part of the City of Death music yeah yeah I think um, I remember seeing that yeah yeah and so finally how many versions of Sharda have you seen on this, <laughs> this box set? Never have three. Seen those <laughs> I have seen three.
2: Minus the Paul McGann version, which obviously they're saving for the Eighth Doctor collection box that Yes, will we've be... got to pad that out somehow, haven't they? Yes. <laughs> Here's a disc of another version of Shada. Just
0: another
2: edit of the TV movies. Yes.
0: <laughs> so, yes, so we get three different versions of Shada here. So well, the definitive version but one is new. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly. I mean, it is so. And again, the complaint that was made of it when the original Blu-ray came out yeah. of the sort of partly animated and reconstructed version of Sharda was, why was it presented as a movie? Why isn't it episodic? And obviously, they were waiting for the set to do it yeah. episodically, so that had something different on it. I think so.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, if if you go back in the old Trap One archives, me and Mark did the uh, the podcast for that release, and we did like um, kind of like query why it'd been edited together as a movie and not like given the option for a, you know an episodic version. Um, but I'm glad to see it as uh, episodes now. And uh, I didn't watch it all again, but I did go to the episode breaks to see like you know where it was, and it, it works a lot better. It works a lot better than edited together as a movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it says it's the definitive version. We all know the definitive version is going to be the one to do with puppets at some point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, or deep fake technology. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's it is it's as close as we're going to get, isn't it? To, yeah. to to what would have would have been on on the screen. I think, um, I think you can tell that it's not finished though. And ultimately, I think, you know, for me, there was a few bits of clunky dialogue in there, um, which I think the, the one that sticks out is the scene where I think the doctor's on Skygrass' ship and he's talking about how stupid he is and he just keeps repeating the word stupid over and over again. You know, and it's it's just, I used to write like that when I was 16 and doing English GCSE, you know, and I got told off by my, my GCSE English teacher, like, that is not good writing that is not how how you write and I think this is the sort of stuff that if it had been filmed would have been ironed out
0: yeah quite you know possibly I, mean? I think maybe the actors would have had yeah. a bit more input and
1: done it's, something differently exactly you know if you imagine like Tom in his height you know would have you know potentially had something to say about that he would have wanted to give them the readings a bit different um, than what he has yeah um, and like I think I see the characterization of Romana doesn't really sit fit with us as well. Um, just with how you know passive. She doesn't get a great deal to do. No, she, she, she sits and gets a PowerPoint presentation on on, <laughs> on Shorter and the History of the Time Loads and whatnot. And um But it's again, it's it's another one that we, we're lucky to have. So let's not quibble about you know what it is. Let's enjoy what it is, because it is good animation. Um it doesn't really take you out of it. You know, it flips between you know live action and animation at times. And certainly I wasn't didn't find that jarring at all. I was able to just sit and watch the whole the whole thing and enjoy it. Um oh what's the name of the, the monsters in this one?
0: Krogs.
1: Yeah, the Krogs were a bit so sort
0: of
1: <laughs> <laughs> Um Hit and Missy, I think. It was a bit hard to tell what was going on with them at times with K9, you know, with these
0: batteries full of plot, zapping them. A little bit, but you I know. think the thing that I like best about this new version is Marquez's score. I think that is just absolutely wow. beautiful. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's all in all ways Dudley Simpson, in the way Keth McCulloch's score that was apparently Dudley Simpson esque was not oh, Dudley oh. Simpson esque at all. No. <laughs> Even in
2: 1992, it was like, What? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that's a Keth McCulloch score.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, it's 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 I like what I like is it's not an attempt to be Dudley; it's a homage to Dudley. Yeah, you know it is.
2: Yeah, it's like a pastiche, isn't it? It's it's it's, it's yeah. just it's, like you say; it's a lovely tribute yeah, to. Yeah, a tribute isn't it? It's,
1: it's very City of Death. It's, yes, you
2: know, it's, I
0: think he sort of takes a similar motif to the City of Death, running around Paris, music, and yeah. makes a cycling round Cambridge <laughs> theme. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: and again for all that there is, you know bits of dialogue which I don't think are the best I think there are some that really are the best you know sort of like <laughs> some tea yes you know do you want some milk you know was it two lumps what's the line um, sugar? sugar sugar
0: yes <laughs> one, oh, great, yeah, one <laughs> oh, sometimes of sugar yes you know it's, and it's, I the whole panting scene is yeah. just beautiful and I know Everyone has seen it a hundred times because everyone's watched The Five Doctors a hundred times, yep. but it still is is absolutely brilliant. The two of them are just so utterly in love, I think. Yeah. In those scenes. Uh, Skagra as well. Skagra's costume needs a mention.
1: Because <laughs> that's just a you know a design masterpiece just flouncing through the streets of Cambridge with you know that. That wide brimmed hat and
0: that cloak, um, and no one batting an eyelid.
2: <laughs> it's obviously fresh as week, isn't it? You know?
1: <laughs> uh, who, who's the little butler guy? Um, oh, Wilkin, Wilkins. Yes, the sort of that 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 was a part was made for Ronnie Corbett, wasn't it? You can imagine Ronnie Corbett.
2: Well, yeah. yeah, I think so. But the guy playing it was the uh, the original guy who played Billy Bunter, yeah. wasn't he? Nineteen fifties, and I think uh, that was his last uh, ever appearance, right? Uh, I believe, and I think it's mentioned on the making of documentary that apparently the, the poor actor, because he'd retired from acting by that uh-huh. point, and came back especially, and then it was absolutely heartbroken oh, when they told him, "Oh, he's actually not, really not going to go voice. out." Oh,
1: bless him bless him but that that whole part of just you know with the you know the doctor walking in as well I know you, you've been here 20 years and you've never changed and you know it's just a, another really just you know sumptuously written part it was a how did I describe
0: I think um he's a pre hartnell go are we <laughs> but yeah it's just nice that again he he knows the doctor and he's just as delighted to see him as Chronotis is, yeah. and it it just adds to the the Doctor's character that he pops back every so often to have a chat with his friend, says hello to Wilkin, <laughs> turns up in a different body every Absolutely.
1: so often. I've seen this guy just taking it all in his stride, and you know rooms are disappearing, and he's just taking it all in his stride. It's just, it's yeah, it's very Douglas Adams, isn't it? This whole story is very, very Douglas Adams you know, from the Cambridge setting through to the, you know, the ideas, um, it's, you know, it's another high, sort of high concept sci-fi story, isn't it? With
2: Well, there's that anecdote, isn't it? Like, well, Douglas apparently said, like, well, anybody can build a spaceship, but it takes real imagine to do an <laughs> invisible spaceship. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep.
0: Exactly. So this time round, I did actually watch the 1992 version again, which I haven't seen for a number of years. And (laughs) it doesn't hang together quite as well as the the definitive version or the movie version or the Paul McCann version (laughs) or the novel of of the unfinished story. (laughs) But it does bring back a lot of memories and it's always, always a joy to see that introduction from Tom Baker Walking around the Momi Museum yeah. and yeah, oh, ah, yeah. wonderful. Yeah, giant robot beat you cock and Victoria <laughs> Burgoyne. Yes,
1: <laughs> but it's, it's lovely you get to watch this so called definitive version with that intro as well.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's nice It's nice touch that they put that as an option to uh, have at the beginning. Yep. Or your Toby Haydock, and now a little later than
0: scheduled. <laughs> 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 which I always enjoy as well. So yes, so that's season seventeen. Overall, how do you think this set stands up against the other sets that we've had so far?
1: Um, I think it's you know, it it stands up very well. Um, you know, we have got a lot there. Um there's you know there's a few things that possibly we could have had. It would have been nice to have a, a new making of, of Eden, I think, um, you know, given the trouble behind the scenes, you know, with um with Adam Bromley leaving, I think that would have been really nice to have a new making of there. But you know, the stuff that we have got is again, it's top draw, it's made with love. It's really, you know, a, a well packaged you know set. It's not, you know, one of the ones, for example, like the you know, later Sylvester McCoy's where you think actually the you know just trying to put some stuff in, you know, that's it's 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 enough it's what you've got's good it leaves you wanting more but happy with what you've got if that makes sense so uh, yeah I've, I've really enjoyed you know my time going through going through this this season um in hd because again a lot of it is scrubbing up really nice with the high definition uh, looking absolutely fantastic sounding absolutely fantastic um absolutely yeah brilliant love it continue
2: yeah it's it's great to revisit uh like these series uh, because you know what you tend to do is like when like the the vhs's or the the dvds came out you'd watch them once and then you put them up on the shelf and you'd you'd always go back to your favorite stories whenever you you wanted to like have a like a a slice of doctor who you know one evening so it's nice that they're being released as collections and and together um, and, the, you know, the packaging is absolutely wonderful. The price that they go out for, you, you know, I would blame the BBC. They stuck this out for 80 quid, you know. We're no, probably still exactly. all. You think them. how much we paid for it all on VHS
0: originally? 10
2: pounds a story. Yeah, you look at other um, like shows um, that have got archive releases, and none of them have got them to the standard of this. We really are spoilt for choice, you know, and I can't wait for the next uh, box set, which is obviously season 22, which is one of those, another season, which is kind of like regarded as a bit controversial and stuff. And, you know, where things started to go wrong in the 80s, you know, where obviously this is seen where things kind of like went wrong and then there was an about turn, a radical about turn for like season 18, which we've already had. But, yeah, it's great to revisit these stories and it's great to see new contributions that they put on. I really love the the um, behind-the-sofa extras because when I first heard about that, I thought, oh, God, that sounds awful. That sounds absolutely (laughs) bloody awful. Essentially, it's Gogglebox, but with Doctor Who people (laughs) watching Doctor Who, you know, and it it really
0: works. And, yeah, there's something great about seeing other doctors talking about other doctors' work. And yeah, and when they get really into it and say, "Oh, I would have liked to have done this one," or or find out what a fanboy Matthew Waterhouse is because he knows everything yes. about all of these stories. Yeah, and he's
2: telling Colin that, like, "Oh, this happened, this and yeah. this went out that, and that, that's the reason for that." Uh, so yeah, it's we. Uh, I can't fault these sets enough. I really can't. No, they are are probably the best we're ever going to get from the
0: classic series, aren't they now? And this is the gold standard, really, of, of Archive TV releases. So the behind-the-sofa on this set is really
1: fantastic because I think they've got some really good uh, pairings. Um, I think, you know, Katie and Nicola Bryant together are just wonderful because it is just, I think, as, as Nicola says, just, you know, watching Doctor Who with me best friend, and that's just such a wonderful... <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Feeling. I love Colin and Matthew Waterhouse because there's a very sort of, <laughs> you know, granddad grandson dynamic going on there, where where Matthew Waterhouse is kind of explaining to Colin, and I think Colin's playing into it a little bit, but it's like, you know, this is what's coming on next, and you know, it's just such a lovely, warm um,
0: chemistry. Yeah, relationship and you haven't got the two of them. anyone who's um, being flat, really really bitchy about the season, so there's no thing. Janet Fielding, so every everything is nice. <laughs> I think, I think we get that really from, no. from Matt Irvin more than anyone else. <laughs> yeah.
2: He's the bitchy one on yeah. this one, but he's with his tongue firmly in his cheek mm-hmm. and acknowledging <laughs> that they still did some good stuff. Yeah.
0: But it is always a joy to watch the story and then go and watch the behind the sofa afterwards and see what they've all made of it. Yeah. So, yes, that's season 17. Yeah. I think definitely. Um, we've. Giving it a good overview, hopefully, and how how do you feel about the season sort of coming away from it? Um,
1: I feel a little bit bad at the (laughs) minute because I feel like I said a lot of negative things about these stories as the event's gone on. (laughs) Often, creature of the pit, which is fantastic, which I don't really think um, you know fully conveys how I do feel about this season because I do love it. I think you know, especially having come back and for this box set, because again, this is a, a thing that I love about these box sets coming out is because stories and seasons get re You know, we've talked about like time in the Arnie, how that's had a, you know, reevaluation when the set came out, you know, season 22 is coming up next. So I'm looking forward to a lot of stories there that are going to get a bit of a, um, bit of a Twitter bounce, shall we say, when, when people go on then and start seeing how much they love it. So yeah, I love, I really love this one. You know, when I'm saying, you know, I like, don't like this story as much as this other one you know it's coming from a place of i actually really really like this story i just like other ones more um if that makes sense um you know i've I've, it's fantastic it's fun it's enjoyable there's not one one of these stories i wouldn't be happy to go and watch right now you know put on and just sit down and enjoy a good dose of sci-fi fun sci-fi fun enjoyable doctor who
2: yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, it's never going to be one of the best seasons, but I think I, I, I would say it again, and I, I think he said this in the Bob Baker uh, thing that you know some Doctor Who stories are like a comfort blanket because they take you back to that era, they take you back to a certain point in time when either you first discovered the show or where you were a certain age, and for me, obviously, you know, I was the ideal age for when this went out, just like uh, you were Simon, like you know six years old, seven years old, you know, didn't see any flaws in any of the stories, it was a rollicking adventure every single week and that's what it is, it's a Doctor Who comfort blanket yes, you know, with adult eyes you can see it for the faults that some of the stories have and you could be hypercritical but, you know, let's face it, you know, even the classic of classic stories, you know, you could find something to uh, be at fault for them you know not every single doctor who story is flawless you know and not every single bad doctor who story is completely bad because we absolutely love the whole of this show and you can find something to enjoy in every single doctor who story and i think you know that's what you need to do when you're looking at something like this you know you need to you know Wrap it, wrap it, wrap it around you as a comfort blanket, and and take you back to that day and age of the you know, TV strikes and three day weeks and power cuts and all the rest of it. If you lived through it, feel <laughs> really me age now. For me, I, it was my first, and you
0: always love your first, don't you? It always has a really special place in in my heart because this is where Doctor Who began for me, and. As I said at the start, it was the perfect jumping-on point as a young kid um, to have Tom Baker, who was acted like no adult I knew acted, um, and just being this huge, comforting and, and scary figure at times, and Lala Ward just being smart and beautiful and wearing wonderful clothes, and they've got a robot dog with them, and just having just going around the universe, having fun and getting involved in these silly adventures that are actually really high concept and really, really brilliant, thought, brilliantly thought through. I mean, I think this is an imaginative peak for Doctor Who if it's not a production peak. And for those reasons, it's, it's really easy to get swept up in these stories and just love them to pieces.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah. Can't agree more. So there, there we go. That's season 17. <laughs> so, thank you very much. And where can we find you on the internet, Fraser? Oh, you'll find
1: me hanging around dodgy corners in Twitter. It's at Felix Fraser. Um, you'll find me on other podcasts such as Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife and Gallifrey's Most Wanted. Now i to be praised as well. And uh, Doctor Who Literature with a friend of the podcast, Jason Miller.
0: And how about you, UK Jason? UK Jason.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Twitter at DjangoMax72 and I'm also on YouTube as Bearded Geek Toy Reviews where I review uh, Doctor Who figures, Star Wars figures and lots of other geeky stuff as well.
0: Fantastic. And you can find me on Twitter as at Cy underscore heart. And like Fraser, I have done all exactly the same other podcasts, except you can add in her flight through entirety on there as well. And um, you can find other episodes of Trap One at trap one dot beam, I believe. I've probably got that wrong and Mark will tell me off. And you can find Trap One on Twitter at, at trap one underscore so, thank you very much for listening, and hope you've enjoyed this. And hope you will tune in next time for another exciting Trap One podcast. So, just mainly say thank you um, to my two co-stars, Jason and Fraser, for your wonderful contributions, and we'll see you all soon. Thank you for having us on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Now. Bye.